0: I can hear some of you thinking to yourselves already How in the world is he going to get an Easter message out of this? Number one, I don't uh, usually agonize about those things Number two, every road leads to the cross in the Bible, my friends And so we will probably find our way there this morning Some strange things have been known to come through the roof Before my... Uh, trip to uh, India, my first trip, there was uh, a fellow who had just been there for the first time. And so I was introduced to him so that he could share with me some of his uh, cultural experiences. And uh, this story was told about him. He was deathly afraid of snakes. And he was in a very remote part of India. And he was staying as a guest in, in one of the humble houses that was there. And uh, so there was a little boy that lived in the house, and he said to the little boy, you don't have any snakes around here, do you? The kid says, oh, yeah, 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 we got lots of snakes. He said, but you don't have any in the house. Oh, yeah, there was one in the house last week. Well, how did they get there? Well, the little boy said, they they come up the side of the house and, and then they climb up on the roof and they work their way through the thatch and then they just drop down, which is really true, by the way, and and uh, so anyway, this guy of course is pondering that thought day and night. I think it was his last day. It was about four in the morning, and he hears this noise outside the house, and it's going up the wall. And then he hears it up on the roof, and he hears the, some things moving around up there, and all of a sudden, plop, something is between his legs on the bed. <laughs> he is just about to die. He reaches down, and he grabs his flashlight, and he shines it between his legs and sees two beady eyes of a rat. <laughs> <laughs> It's the only time, I think, a rat would ever be a welcome visitor. I actually have one more story. A friend of mine, Bob Barlow, in seminary days, had uh, a number of kids. I'm trying to remember whether he had six or seven by that, that time, but he had a number of kids. And Bob was the most laid-back guy I have ever known in my life. I'm talking to him on the phone, and all of a sudden there's this clatter and commotion and whatever, And and old Bob says over the phone, Hi guys, how's it going? His kids had been playing in the attic, and one of them had fallen through the roof, right down in front of Bob, there at his feet. Didn't rattle him a bit. Well, we have a story about something coming through the roof that's pretty unusual in our text, as you know. Mark chapter 1 is about the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the authority that comes from the Old Testament prophets who foretold not only the coming of, of John the Baptist, but of the one John would uh, be the forerunner of, and and that, of course, is our Lord Jesus. It is the authority of our Lord Jesus that is demonstrated at his baptism, where the Father speaks from heaven and the Spirit descends and, and stays upon him. It's the authority of our Lord Uh, when he's in the wilderness with the wild beasts and being tempted. And then it's the authority of our Lord as you see him uh, preaching, and in particular in the synagogue at Capernaum, dealing with that demonized man, that terrifying sight and experience, and commanding that the demon come out of him. Then the healing of Simon Peter's uh, mother-in-law, and the healing of many at her door that evening, and then his dealing with the leper uh, at the close of chapter 1. Chapter 2 is about the Lord's authority too, because it is the authority of our Lord Jesus that is the bone of contention with those who are the religious leaders. This is where that religious bunch really appears. You don't see them in chapter 1. But you need to understand the setting. These guys had their own little fiefdoms, their own little power brokerage houses in all the towns where there were synagogues. There were scribes, and there were Pharisees, and there were these religious teachers and leaders. And all of a sudden, with the coming of John the Baptist, people vaporize. They look out, they see empty seats, and they wonder where everybody is, and they're told that they're out following John the Baptist. And then Jesus comes along, and they're following him. And they hear that Jesus, when he comes to the synagogues, he not only teaches, he has a new teaching, and that teaching is with the kind of authority that can cast out demons and heal those who are sick. So these guys are a little uptight, and it's not surprising that when we come to chapter two, these guys come from out of the woodwork. Now, you might get the impression from Mark's text that there's a handful of those scribes and Pharisees that are there in the audience, but when you read in the other accounts, you discover that they come from every synagogue in Galilee, in Judea, and Jerusalem. Now folks, the way I read it, unless that's a huge house, it's basically filled with religious leaders. And so that's the setting Uh, that we see, and notice, Jesus has come from the wilderness, because the the leper who was cleansed would not obey, did not keep it silent. Jesus was forced to retreat to the wilderness. He now comes back from the wilderness, and he is in Capernaum, not in the synagogue, but in a house. And we we may, some would say, it's probably the house of Peter and Andrew. But it says... That Jesus is there teaching the word, and actually it's the word speak. That, I, I made the mistake of using the word preach when I first typed this in, and I thought to myself, no, that's not really true at all. It's the normal word for conversation. Jesus is not there with his pulpit pounding on it, you know, going through all kinds of authoritative gestures. He's talking to them about the word and that's uh, the point at which uh, this uh, gentleman comes through the roof. Now, I need to add a note for you here from Luke chapter 5 verse 17. When I study these texts, I I basically take the parallel text and I just cut and paste them and I put them right in front of me so I read every one of the accounts to note the differences. Here's an interesting thing that you find in Luke chapter 5 and verse 17 at the introduction to this very same story. It says, And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Isn't that interesting? The power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. That implies to me that it wasn't always there. And so I see a a couple of things converging on this. Number one, Jesus purposely determined that he would not let his ministry be a miracle ministry that drew the crowds because of the miraculous. We know that. And his retreating was part of that. His commanding those that he healed to be silent was part of that. He purposed to do that. But if the power of our Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry is the power of the Spirit that came upon Him at His baptism, then there were times where it was evident to Jesus that He couldn't heal in the sense that the Spirit was not giving Him that power at that moment. So I see His predisposition to teach, and that is exactly what He's doing. Notice, He is teaching the crowds there, not doing miracles. But he knows that the power is there to perform a healing. So when this guy comes down through the roof, Jesus knows that he can say to him, rise up, take up your bed and, and walk. So that's uh, just kind of an interesting uh, other element to plug into this account. The... Uh I think that you could see this is a result, this this event of his teaching is a result of the decisions that he has made in chapter 1, not to be the miracle man, but rather to be the one who speaks the word. The scribes and the Pharisees are present, as I've indicated, they are numerous. Uh, If they come from every synagogue throughout Galilee and Judea, that's a bunch of them. I think, okay... I know I'm on the, out there hanging from the twig at the end of the limb. How is it that a man that is so uh, troubled in terms of his health can be brought on a stretcher and nobody makes room for him to get in? My guess is, you know who the guys were that told him to get lost? The religious boys. They have crammed their, now I know, I know it's fanciful, but they've crammed a way in. We know it's filled with those guys. They've crammed their way in. They will not make it possible for that man to get to Jesus. In other words, read the text. It is easier to break through a roof to get to Jesus than to break through that crowd. That's a nasty bunch, in my opinion. And they were. So, here we have this man now. In the hands of four friends, and you got to see this from the the inside, but but just pause for a moment. When we were in Israel, I never saw one house with a thatched roof. Okay, you know my story about the rat? Thatched roof. Makes a lot of sense. Rat just works his way through, or the snake, plop, down he comes. Thatched roof. Easy. In those days, remember the law said that there had to be a parapet, that is a safety rail, like we've got up there, a safety rail on the top of your roof. Why? So that people, when they were up on the top of the roof, didn't fall off. So well, the roof was a place where you walked. Now, it wasn't one of these kind of roofs, where you, you know, like a water slide. It was a flat roof, and people walked and lived on their roof. Are you getting the picture? This is one heap substantial... Piece of roof folks now they try to break through the crowd they can't do it these guys are people of faith thanks to paul johannan he reminded me that the guy on the pallet was one of those guys who had faith and i've been thinking about that if they were going to lower me down through this roof on four ropes that guy on the bed has faith too folks he really does They have faith in this whole thing. These men of faith would not be put off. They would not be set aside by difficulties. Wouldn't it have been easy for people to say, I'm sorry, friend, we tried, but you know what can we do? We can't get in. These guys had such faith, they were going to overcome the obstacles. So they go up on this roof, and again, you don't take four guys and a stretcher guy on a thatched roof. And by the way, thatched roofs go like this, not like this, right? So what you have is this jackhammer kind of surface. Now, put yourself under the roof for a minute. Wouldn't you love to hear what Jesus had been talking about just prior to the first pieces of roof that crumble and fall down? When I, I mean, he says to this man, your sins are forgiven, my guess is the subject at hand was the forgiveness of sins. That's my guess. I don't think that's probably far off. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, people could have said. What did John mean by that? <laughs> okay, so here we are. This place is packed now, folks. We got people standing in the aisles. We got people sitting and standing up here on the platform. And all of a sudden, chunks of roof begin to come down. Not straw, not straw, but rocky pieces. I can understand how they could clear a spot for a man to come down. Could you not? Uh, No, they may not clear a spot out there when he wants to come this way. When he's coming this way, can you imagine? Here's Jesus talking, people listening, and all of a sudden people are saying, what is that noise? What is that noise? Clunk, clunk, down come the pieces of rock. Everybody stands back and watches as they dig their way. That's what Mark says. Dig their way through the roof. Luke says they work their way through the tiles. I'm guessing maybe it's a combination of both. But i got to tell you, if I'm standing under a tile roof and they're taking it apart, I'm moving out of the way. All that's happening while Jesus is teaching in that house. Now, here's Jesus. He sees their faith. He doesn't just determine to heal that man. He makes the statement. He sticks his neck out, so to speak, and he says, Your sins are forgiven. Okay, these are theologians. And they got their old theological engines working away, and they're saying, Whoa, wait a minute. Nobody forgives sins but God. By the way, that was a really spooky thing for them. Because if Jesus had the the ability to forgive sins, they lost all power. They were the gatekeepers for the synagogue. John chapter 9, remember? The blind man, he finally had it with these guys. And he just said, well then, aren't you the smart guys? He rips away at them. And they say, you're out of the synagogue, buddy. You are out. That was the same as saying, go to hell. They were the gatekeepers. If you've got a Messiah who has the authority to forgive sins, who cares about the synagogue, right? You want to have the one who has the authority to forgive. So he tells the man that his sins are forgiven. And uh, they go into orbit at the implications of that. Okay, I'm going to say something about seeing their faith and saying their sins are forgiven. Let me just make a, a couple of, of comments. There is a link, a relationship between faith and forgiveness. Is there not? The forgiveness of sins, would you all agree with me? There is a, a relationship. The source of the faith is not mentioned. It says that the Lord sees their faith. Now, if we're going to get all bent out of shape and say, see, the Lord goes around looking for people who have faith, and he does this for them, we know from other texts where the faith came from. It came from him. <laughs> so, he gives them faith. They exercise faith. He says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Another thing he says, now, in order to prove this, he says, if I can say your sins are forgiven... Who knows whether it's true or not? What's really tough is to say to a man who can't walk, get up and walk, and by the way, take your bed with you when you go. If I can say that, that must validate my claim to be able to forgive sins. But he says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Think about this. Son of Man's a real big subject, and the theologians love to scrap around with that stuff. But... Bottom line is this. It's only used of our Lord, by our Lord Jesus, of Himself. Other people don't call Him the Son of Man. He calls Himself the Son of Man. Okay? The Son of Man is most often, once in Daniel it's used of one like the Son of Man, and that has a pretty divine element, but it still means He looks like a man. He really is a man, of course, we know, from the incarnation of our Lord. But, there is an emphasis upon the humanity of our Lord by making the statement, the Son of Man. Why would, why would the Lord Jesus stress that? Okay. This is going to be a little far out for some of you. So just bear with me, but I'll try this on for size. I think that the, the miracles and the message of Jesus were so unbelievably great that the issue in people's minds wasn't whether he was divine. It was whether he could be human. Think about that for a minute. From our point of view, we're always trying to prove Jesus is God, right? But one of the attacks upon the person of our Lord was that he wasn't really human. And he must be human if he is to die in the sinner's place. So I think what the Lord is doing here, John chapter 9, people, the blind man says, look... Never in the history of man has any man ever done this. Some people could have come away and said, he's no man at all. (laughs) So Jesus keeps underscoring this fact. He is the son of man and he has the authority to forgive sins. Okay, I'll let that one go. So here we are. Scribes and Pharisees mentally object. Jesus heals them. And the crowd marvels and gives glory to God. Luke tells us, They were filled with fear. They understood in all of this, there was something really authoritative about Jesus. And they were right, I think, to have that fear. So we leave the scribes and the Pharisees uh, silent, not squelched, not done in, but what can you say? When the guy pushes his way past you with his mattress on the way out the door. It's tough. It's tough. So now we come to the next issue. Jesus and his associates. Chapter two, verses 13 through 17. This is the call of Levi and the banquet that results. Jesus now is back, as Mark tells us, he is going along the Sea of Galilee and he is teaching. Again, I find it interesting, the emphasis on teaching rather than miracle working, because that was our Lord's priority. He is teaching, and in the course of his teaching, he comes upon Levi. We know him to be Matthew from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 9. So Levi is called by Jesus. He follows Jesus. And we know from our text that there is a reception that's held at Levi's house, a banquet. We know from Luke's gospel that Levi's the guy who gave the banquet. And we know from Mark's gospel that not only Levi was following Jesus, but the text tells us many tax collectors were following Jesus. Get that? Many. Not just one tax collector. Many are saying, I'm going I'm to get in line with this, and I'm going to see where this thing goes. So they're following the Lord Jesus, and of course that creates a problem for the Pharisees, because their view of holiness was all about separation. Holiness is keeping your distance from sinners. So if Jesus is not keeping his distance from sinners, then how in the world could he possibly be holy like them? So that's their issue. And by the way, it's it's called here a couple of times the Pharisees and their scribes isn't that an interesting expression? not the scribes and the Pharisees, as though they are two separate entities, the Pharisees and their scribes that is the scribes are the Pharisees stooges they own the they own the scribes they're the ones who are the top dogs, and these scribes are the underlings who carry out what it is that the Pharisees have determined should happen. So here are the Pharisees and their scribes, and they challenge this whole issue. And notice, they don't challenge Jesus. This is the indirect approach. They come after the disciples and say, what's the deal with your uh, with your master here that so he's rubbing shoulders with the likes of this? And Jesus responds, you don't send a doctor to those who are healthy. A doctor goes to those who are sick. And then he adds, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now, Luke adds a very critical expression. He says, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now, if you're going to call people to repentance, who are you going to call? (laughs) Who are you going to be with? Jesus is saying, why would I bother to be around you righteous folks? My job is fixing sinners. And you guys obviously aren't on the list in your mind. So I'm with them because they're my job. Calling the sinners to repentance. Now, the next one's called to feast or to fast. Interestingly, the disciples of John the Baptist get in on this. And you can understand why, because John the Baptist's followers continued to practice a number of aspects of classical Judaism. And so, the Pharisees are fasting, John the Baptist's disciples are fasting, Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. Now, when you read Luke's Gospel and you see this event about the banquet. And then you see this issue about fasting and not fasting. Luke just goes with an and which says to me while Jesus is at the banquet with Matthew and company they're not eating at all. <laughs> now that ought to make you mad, right? Here's the old barbecue out and whatever, they could smell the stuff coming down the way and here they are Rigidly carrying out their fast, and they're thinking, what are we doing? Doing this, and how come they're having a banquet? Jesus takes uh, that on in verses 18 through 22. Why don't Jesus' disciples fast? Jesus answers, first of all, it all depends on whether the Master is present or absent. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 12, And you remember the servants of the uh, master who is the bridegroom, he is at the wedding, he is feasting, it says. But the servants are anxiously waiting for the master to come, and when he knocks, they will open the door, and the master will serve his servants their meal. So the servants are fasting, and they're fasting because their master is not with them. When the Master is with them, they will eat and they will celebrate because the Master being with them is their joy. Isn't that what heaven's about? Being in heaven with the Master, eating it up, man! Eating it up! Because it's a banquet filled with joy. So, here you have that answer given. John the Baptist is gone. Well, he's in jail, right? He's not with them. I can understand why those guys had fast. And... The Pharisees, well, their Messiah hasn't come yet. They're fasting too. Jesus' disciples have figured it out. The Master is with them. You bet they're eating. And rightly so. It would have been wrong not to. So, he answers it that way, but then he comes to the broader issue. It's really a question about the old and the new. There's an interesting statement in Luke chapter 5, verse 39. It either says, some translation, the old is good or the old is good enough. I like the NIV and I think the Holman Standard Bible. The old is better. That, my friend, is the slogan of Phariseeism. The old is better. And I'm saying the old covenant, the old law, the old system, They were preservationists. We want to keep things as they are. People are saying to them, it's a new teaching with authority. That scares the fire out of them. You know why? Because they've got all their stock in old. And if stock is going on new, they're in trouble. And that's exactly what they say in John chapter 11. They get together and they say, do you realize where we're headed with this? If we let Jesus live, he's going to take away everything we have. He's taking away our old, and he's bringing something new, and we're not a part of that. So old is better. They're trying to save it. And what Jesus says is, I'm what's new. I'm the wine. (laughs) You're the wineskins. You're old, and brother, do you need patching? But you don't put new wine In old wineskins. You don't put the new covenant in the old covenant. You replace it with the new. See, and these guys didn't want to be replaced. Their investment was what was old. And so Jesus is saying, that's really what it's about. What scares you to death is what I bring to the table is new. Because that's what God promised he would do. You don't like what's new. And that's the fundamental issue. Going against the grain. I know I had to do that. But here's the story of going through the fields. And here are the disciples hungry. Wasn't illegal. It wasn't stealing, folks, to walk through somebody's field, whether it was grapes or whatever it was, and to help yourself to what you could eat. Now, if you got a bushel basket, that's a problem. But here they were, stripping the heads of grain, popping them, rubbing them off, popping them in their mouth. There was nothing illegal about that in the Old Testament law. But Pharisaism had turbocharged the law, and they had added to it, and so now this is wrong in their minds. And uh, so they take this issue on, and they basically say, Jesus is letting his disciples break the sabbath now if you understand the sabbath controversy it's all through the gospels and there are all kinds of answers that are possible matthew adds another element to this and there are all kinds of things one is just the hypocrisy the hypocrisy jesus when he calls uh, out on that element he says look it's sabbath your ox falls in the ditch do you walk by shrug your shoulders and say it's the sabbath i'm not doing anything about this no, you don't. You get down there and you work your tail off getting that ox out of the ditch because it's your ox. So what Jesus is saying is, you care about your ox. You don't care about this sick person that I've healed, but you care about the ox. You're hypocrites. You don't live by the same standard that you've given. He could have gone there. He doesn't. Here's what he does. He goes to David In the Old Testament, remember where David is fleeing from Saul? He comes to Abiathar, the priest. He lies. Hey, this is not a good place. I would not, if I were David, I would have said, you know, why don't you just leave this story out of here? It isn't my best side. David comes to the priest and he says, I'm on a secret mission for the king, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, my guys are hungry and whatever. And, you know, anyway, ends up... The only thing the priest had was the sacred bread, which was only for priests. No, it's day-old sacred bread, but it's sacred. Only the priest can eat it. And yet, David and his men were given the bread and they ate it. Why? That's what Jesus is getting at. Why? Or, to put it differently, if you guys are so uptight about me breaking the Sabbath, how come you're not uptight about David breaking the rules about bread? You know what the answer is? Because of who he was. Because of who he was. He was the king of Israel to be. And so if the king of Israel to be is in great need, and his life in a sense is in peril, then it's alright for him to partake of that bread. Because of who he is, and because of what he is given to do. Well, is the inference not clear to us? Matthew picks up on that and he says, let me give you another example of lawbreakers, the Sabbath breakers. Look at the priests, those rascals. They work on the Sabbath. Shame on the priests. You say, no, 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 no. Not shame on the priests. Because they're priests. That's their job. That's their work. They have to work on the Sabbath. So it must not be illegal for priests to work on the Sabbath. What Jesus is going to say in the long run is, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You think David is high on the on the political totem pole? I'm the highest. And therefore, if you acknowledged who I am and what my authority is, you wouldn't be quibbling about a few heads of grain being eaten by my disciples. Because there was bread being given to David's. By the way, the Sabbath was the sign of the Old Covenant. Sabbath, Exodus chapter 31. Sabbath is the sign of the Old Covenant. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. Rainbow is the sign of the Noahic Covenant, right? So you see why the Sabbath is so big to them? That's why, by the way, the death penalty came for breaking the Sabbath. This looked like a great charge, Because they could find Jesus guilty of a capital offense. But the irony of it is, they're quibbling about the sign of a covenant which Jesus has come to replace and fulfill. Fulfill and replace. Interesting, wouldn't you say? So, there's the issue of the Sabbath. What's interesting is, that's why I couldn't stop at chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, and had to go down through verse 6. The issue is still the Sabbath. They've chosen to make the Sabbath controversy their cause. That's where they're going to go against Jesus. So you go all the way from the beginning of chapter 2, where nobody's protesting against Jesus until he takes the initiative to forgive a man of his sins. And then he calls out their mental thoughts, which they haven't spoken but he calls attention to him. He puts the issue in the middle of the room. The elephant is there, and he's got the spotlights on it because his authority is what is at an issue, and it is what they most hate. So here we are in their synagogue. <laughs> this is home turf for those guys. This is their own home. They got home field advantage. And... uh in the synagogue on the sabbath the pharisees are now moving to attack mode they're not silent thinking to themselves not griping about the disciples they're looking for a way to find jesus guilty of sabbath breaking and they're sure given his practice he will and they're not disappointed on that count so here they are there's a man there with a withered hand They're watching to see what Jesus is going to do about that. And again, remember, the Sabbath is now the hot button. It's in everybody's sights. That's the issue that's been laid out on the table. Everybody knows it. Jesus looks. He knows what's going on. And here's what he says. Is it bad to do good on the Sabbath? (laughs) Is it bad to do good on the Sabbath? Or he actually says to do good or to kill. Does it make any difference whether one does good or one kills on the Sabbath? Is the goodness or the badness of an act, does it have anything to do with whether or not one could do it? Now, you got to look at this guy with a withered hand. He's voting for good, right? This guy said, oh yeah, it's good, it's good. Get that hand, man. Do it now. They're saying, make my day. Go ahead, do it. This is the thing I've been waiting for. Jesus knows exactly where this is leading. And he says to him, put out your hand. And he heals him. And notice what happens. Oh, John Mar, I owe him big on this one. He pointed this out to me just before this message. He said, have you ever noticed the irony in the gospel of Mark? Here's one. Jesus started with the question, is there a difference between doing good or killing on the Sabbath? Jesus does good and they condemn him. And when they condemn him, they resolve on the Sabbath to kill. Is that not a, is that not just a twist and you're saying, huh, what is this? Here we are, this early in the Gospel of Mark. And already it has been purposed that Jesus must die. Oh, the Herodians, one word. Three times, three times in the New Testament, the word Herodians. What in the world are these pious snobs doing with Herodians who are sellouts to Rome? They have one thing in common, certainly not theological, They are both at great risk if Jesus wins. The Herodians are at great risk because they've invested in Rome. If Jesus tosses Rome out, they're in a bunch of trouble, right? So they have something to lose, and so do the Pharisees. If Jesus, with his new teaching, his new wine, his new covenant wins, then the old covenant boys Lose. No wonder they're willing to jump in bed, proverbially speaking, with the Herodians. Okay, let's talk about some concluding points. Do you notice, this isn't in your notes, I added it, you know I always do that. Do you notice that the very things about which the, the religious elite object are the very things about which you and I rejoice You ever think about that? Their angst is our joy. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. What did we celebrate the last hour? His power, his accomplishment of the forgiveness of sins. We delight in that. They agonized because Jesus associated with sinners. We say with Paul, when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at yourselves, not many wise, not many noble. He says, when our Lord came to get men, he went to the scrap pile. He went to the salvage heap. That's where we come from. He chose to save us and be glorified in us for what little we are, because it brings glory to him. We rejoice in the fact that he associates with sinners to save them, to call them to repentance and to save. He sets aside the legalism of the Old Testament and all of its rules, where men exist for the good of the rules rather than the rules exist for the good of men. We rejoice in the freedom that we have that came through Christ and through the new covenant. And we rejoice that he indeed is the Lord of the Sabbath. Isn't it interesting? The one thing that gets changed with the resurrection of Jesus is the day of worship. Is changed to the day of his resurrection. That's set aside because our Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. We delight, we rejoice in it. Okay, Jesus' authority is the issue. It was the issue in Mark chapter 1 because it's the basis for everything Jesus says and does. It's the basis in chapter 2 for all of the opposition that is raised against Jesus. When you get to the end of the Gospels, and even in the middle of them, this question is constantly raised. By what authority do you cleanse the temple, say these things, do these things? It's all about Jesus' authority. The thing that they hate most is a Jesus with authority. And I have to tell you, unbelievers, unbelievers have an issue with the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you and I wimp out the gospel to take all the guts of it away and the authority, then we have dishonored him and we have misled them. It is about Our Lord's authority his freedom his authority to forgive sins for example the opposition in Mark chapter 2 and early chapter 3 charts the course for the whole life and ministry of Jesus if any of you have ever thought to yourself that Jesus was kind of naively proceeding down this path of having everybody warmly receive him and that his kingdom would be introduced right at that moment You don't understand, from the very outset of our Lord's ministry, he was headed for the cross. He was headed for the cross. This is simply telling us this is where this gospel is going and why. Humanly speaking, it's their hatred of Jesus and his authority. Divinely speaking, it's because Jesus' authority to forgive sins is worked out on a cross. That's something nobody understood. At that moment in time, the authority of Jesus to forgive sins happened at Calvary. And I'll trumpet one more. And the reason you know he has that authority is he was raised from the dead. That's the trump card. Matthew chapter 12 says, you want a sign that what I say is authoritative and accurate? Then here's my sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. When I come forth, you'll know that I'm the one who has the authority to forgive sins. That's why it's so important to celebrate Easter for what it is. It's God's exclamation point on who Jesus is, and on what he did over and over. Read the book of Acts, especially Peter's words in Acts chapter 2. Let it be known that this Jesus whom you crucified is Lord and Christ. He reigns. No wonder people said, men and brethren, what should we do? The answer is, you should believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Father, I pray if there's anyone here in my hearing this morning that somehow thinks that there is any way to heaven apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that they would forsake that in the light of what Jesus himself has said and done. May we acknowledge he is the one with full authority. May we submit joyfully to that and not oppose and resist it. For those of us who are believers, may we go forth knowing that the one we serve has all authority in heaven and on earth and live that way in Jesus' name, amen.